So in our series so far in apologetics, we've been walking through kind of a progression, haven't we? We, we started out by saying, you know, here's all the different worldviews that exist out there. And we talked about the different isms, right? We talked about Christian theism. We talked about naturalism, which denies the existence of God. We talked about nihilism, which is that natural conclusion of naturalism, which says, you know what, there's, there's really no point to anything. Then we talked about how you, you, the world has tried to overcome that. And we looked at, uh, at pantheistic monism, that, that God is in everything, right? That kind of, the Hindu mantra or the, the, even the, the, the Buddhist idea of, of, you know, trying to achieve that perfect unity with, with nature, with the, with the world, with the, uh, the spirit, so to speak. And then we looked at new age spirituality, right? With this idea that I can, I can make myself better. And that builds off of existentialism, which says that I can escape the, the pointlessness of, of the physical world that I live in by trying to, to get beyond it, to get to the realm of, of the immaterial and, and realize the, the fullness there. And then finally, we got to this idea of, of postmodernism, which rules so much of our day. But then we move from, from looking at the worldviews to looking at truth, because one of those has to be true. And so we have to ask ourselves, well, how can I know what truth is? And we talked about the fact that truth is that which corresponds with what? reality, right? And, and then from that point, we had to ask, okay, so then what is reality? If, if truth is that which corresponds to reality, then I have to know something about reality. And we found out that reality is at its very core, something that had a beginning, right? Something that had a beginning, that reality began, the universe began. And, and that's something that, that not only do Christians believe because the Bible teaches us that, but that's something that the, the world bears out, the universe bears out, and we looked at different scientific reasons and evidences as to why we can stand on firm ground and say, yes, this world had a beginning. If you weren't here for any of those, you can go back online at our website and, and watch those back and, and listen to those, those messages back. But from there, we talked about last time we were together that the one who caused the beginning, the uncaused first cause is, rhymes with schmod and starts with a G. God, right? You're like, that's blasphemous. No, it's not. It's okay. God, right? God is the one that created everything. God is the uncaused first cause. And we looked at different arguments for the existence of God. Well, one of them, just to, to point out that this isn't just conversations that take place at third nine on Sunday nights or in church or in, or in classrooms. One of them we argued for was the, the argument from morality. You guys remember that? Talking about the, the fact that morality bears out the fact that there's a, a, a moral law giver the one that we're accountable to? How many of you guys have been following what's going on in the news with this Supreme Court justice nominee, Brett, Brett Kavanaugh? Anybody? Okay. Some of you guys are like, I don't know what the Supreme Court is. That's okay. They'll get there eventually. It's like third year in college. They cover it, um, I think. But Brett Kavanaugh was, was nominated to the Supreme Court, and, and a lot of people in Christian circles in the church felt good about that. I mean, here's a guy that uh, we think is, is going to be a friend to the unborn and, and help... Uh, with uh, trying to overturn some legislation that supports abortion and some other things like that. So we were all behind that. And then right before his, his confirmation, somebody stepped out, a, a woman stepped out and said, hey, you know what? I was sexually assaulted by Brett Kavanaugh when I was in high school. And all of a sudden, everything came to a screeching halt. But here's what we have to, to step back and realize is this is evidence of people's belief in a moral standard at work, whether or not they believe in the existence of God at all. What we all have to agree on, every single one of us, and if you listen to Al Mohler uh, talk about this at all this week, he said this, look, if what is being accused of Brett Kavanaugh, if, if that's true that he actually did that, Mohler said it's, it's absolutely wrong. And he's right, it is absolutely wrong. And all of us have to agree on that. 
But what's interesting is you've got a lot of people who aren't necessarily, well, uh, who aren't believers or friends of Christianity at all, now appealing to a moral standard and saying, this man is not qualified to serve as a judge because he is not up to a certain moral standard, which we would ask the question, where does that moral standard come from, right? Because if there is no God to whom we are all accountable, then your moral standard doesn't matter. And who cares what he did when he was in high school? Let's just vote him in. And so you see that this whole concept of does God exist and how can we prove God exists? There, there's avenues to get there in your conversations with peers. If, if, if you guys will, will spend time on news websites at all, you will have plenty of fodder to have conversations with people about the existence of God. Uh, so that's just a, a, a side note there. But tonight we're there to, to, to go a, a, another step further with this whole progress and we're there to ask the question, which God, Right? Is it the God of the Bible? Is it the God of the Quran? Is it the God of, you know, the gods of pantheistic monism? Is it the, the God of Mormonism? It, which God are we talking about when we say that God is the one behind the beginning? We would say as believers that it's the God of the Bible. You guys can interact. It's okay. Okay, Bible. It's like one of the safest church answers. Jesus, God, or Bible, okay? So we're going to go number three. On the count of three, one, two, three. Bible. That was, some of you are still going, I'm not saying Bible. That's uncool. I'm not going to do that. Fine, whatever. Um, the Bible's a, a big deal. We would all agree with that. Yes? North, South? Okay. Anybody in here been to the Museum of the Bible yet? Washington, D.C. Okay. It, yeah, pretty amazing, huh? It's six floors and over 55,000 square feet. And it's a museum totally devoted to the Bible. That's pretty impressive. The first floor combines ancient artifacts with modern technology to kind of get you in, immersed in the world of the Bible. The second floor focuses on the Bible's impact on world culture and areas like science and, and uh, justice and law and even into American history. The third floor then gets into the general narrative of the Bible from Abraham through creation, through Jesus and the church. The fourth floor then you get into biblical history and archaeology and then the fifth level, you've got this performing arts theater with a 500-person amphitheater there. They want to bring in lecturers and, and sponsor speakers to come in there. And then on the sixth floor, you've got this rooftop viewing area with stained glass exhibits and a ballroom that seats 1,000 guests. So this is all about what? It's all about the B-I-B-L-E. It's all about the Bible. And so it's attracting people to come and, and see this museum from all over the place. And what it testifies to us is that the Bible is a big deal. Whether or not you believe in God or you say, yes, I agree that God exists, you have to make a decision on the Bible. And what we're going to be looking at this week and next week and the week after is why should we believe that the Bible is trustworthy? Why should we believe that the Bible and what the message says about, what the, what the Bible says about God is something that we should put everything behind? I mean, those of you who were baptized this weekend stood up and said, I'm all in for Christ. And you stood up and said that in front of thousands of people who were gathered here this weekend, not to mention everybody who was watching on live stream. And you testified and said, I'm all in for Christ. I'm all in for God. I was, I was not at one time, and then I was confronted with the truth of the word of God, the, the Bible, and what the Bible says about God, what the Bible says about me, what the Bible says is the problem about that, and what the Bible says Jesus did about that. And then I came to say, yes, I'm all in for the Lord, for Christ. I'm submitting totally to him because of what scripture says. Okay, why? That's what we want to get to. Some of you guys may be in here tonight and thinking, I'm not there. I haven't made that decision. 
Hopefully all of you in this room tonight have friends who would say, I'm not there, I haven't made that decision. Hopefully all of you in this room tonight have somebody in your sphere of influence, whether it's family, coworker, or classmates who aren't believers and you're working on them, you're pressing into them, you're leaning into them as believers saying, you need to come to put your faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Why? Well, that old church answer for the Bible tells me so is the right answer, but we want to know why. There's two types of revelation. And what we mean by revelation is the process whereby God makes himself known to us. See, this God that created everything because everything did have a beginning and, and there's an intelligent designer that created everything. We looked at that last week. He's a, a God who has made himself known. A God who has not remained in, in the darkness, in the shadows, but a God who has, has opened the door to a, a glimpse of who he is. And he's done that in two primary ways. The first way he's done that is through something called general revelation. General revelation is that which is available to all mankind, okay? And it's what we can see and perceive about God through nature and through our own experience. General revelation is different from what we'll get to in a second with special revelation in that it's a, a medium through which God makes himself known. But it's, it's not enough to save anybody, but it is enough to let people know that God exists and that they are ultimately accountable to him. Examples of general revelation that we find in the Bible, Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived, clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Romans two fourteen through 15 gets even further with the concept of general revelation and, and talks about our consciences. Paul writes there, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. This is talking about the moral argument here for the existence of God. They're a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. And then there's also Psalm chapter 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So that's general revelation. That's God saying, I'm here, okay, to everyone. But then there's another kind of revelation, and that's called special revelation. And special revelation consists solely, that's an important word that I'm using intentionally here, solely of the Bible, I cannot claim to have special revelation that's in anything, any way, adding to the word of God. Okay? Does that make sense? In other words, I'm not going to stand up here and tell you that I'm about to prophesy and you need to listen because this is a message from God. That, that's not how this works. As one of the pastors who's out there today says, if you want to hear God, read the Bible out loud. Okay? That is special revelation. One volume, 66 books, 1,100 plus chapters from God through human authors without error in the originals. We'll come back to that concept in a minute. But two kinds of revelation. What we're here to talk about tonight is special revelation. The Bible, 66 books. The, the thing that you have in less than a gig on your phone. Much less than a gig on your phone. The thing that you hold in your hands. Here's a quote about the Bible from F.F. F. Bruce, who's a, a theologian dead now, but he wrote this about the Bible. He said, the Bible at first sight appears to be a collection of literature, mainly Jewish, 
But if we inquire into the circumstances under which the various biblical documents were written, we find that they were written at intervals of a space of nearly 1,400 years. The writers wrote in various lands, from Italy in the west to Mesopotamia and possibly Persia in the east. The writers themselves were a mixed number of people, not only separated from each other by hundreds of years and hundreds of miles, but belonging to the most diverse walks of life. And he goes on, he says, the writings themselves belong to a great variety of literary types, genres. And so what he's saying here is the Bible ultimately is a unique book. That's our main point tonight. That's what we're going to focus in on tonight. Why should I believe the Bible? The first thing that we're going to focus on tonight, and then we'll get to the, the canon next week, and then we'll get to the transmission of the Bible the week after that. But tonight I want to focus in on this. The Bible is a unique book among all books. Why is it unique? First, it's unique in its authorship. The Bible is unique in its authorship. And I know what you think I'm going to say. You think I'm going to say the Bible's unique in its authorship because it was written by God. We'll get there. Any of you guys know how many authors wrote, involved, were involved in the, the compiling of 66 books? Okay, hearing some, some numbers out there. Yeah, at, at least 40 that we know of, okay? Some books we're unsure of the authorship on, but at least 40, okay? That's significant. And think about these different types of, of authors. Were they all of the same type, of the, all of the same social class? Were these all seminary professors that sat down to write the Bible? No. In fact, as we go through, you've got all kinds of, of different people. You have kings, right? You had David, King David and, and King Solomon who were involved in writing the Bible. And you would say, okay, well, that's, that's pretty impressive that you know, there were authors who were kings, the most powerful people even in the entire known world at the time. Then you had a, a prince. You guys remember Moses, the prince of Egypt? Anybody see that movie growing up? Yes, no, maybe. Okay. But he was, right? He was, he was the, the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter. He was a prince of Egypt. That's why that movie has that title. But he was one of the authors of the Bible. In fact, a pretty significant one, the author of the first five books of the Bible. Then you had a, a soldier, a military man in Joshua. Joshua was involved in the writing of scripture. And then you had, keep, keep going here, you had a philosopher in King Solomon. He was known as the wisest man of his age. In fact, you had people flocking to him to hear from his wisdom and, and to, to be in awe of the wisdom that God had given him. So you had philosophers in King Solomon who wrote, you had a government official in Matthew. Anybody remember what Matthew's job was? Tax collector, yeah. So he was working for Rome. So you had this government official that was working in, for Rome and, and was a, a writer of the Bible. Then you have this guy, a doctor and a historian, and that is Luke, right? We're studying the gospel of Luke right now in, in church on Saturday nights and Sunday morning. And by the way, side note here, if you're not with us on Saturday nights and Sunday morning, this is not church, what we're doing right now, okay? This is something that we do that's beneficial and helpful, and we gather together because it's encouraging, and we can grow from things like this. This is a good thing to do, but if you're not a part of a weekend service, I'd love for you to be a part of the weekend services here, but make sure you get plugged into a, a body of believers, the whole entire church, and that you are not neglecting to be there for the weekend services. That's, that's my sidebar on that, okay? This is not church. This is part of it, but this is not, don't let this be your only church that you have all week long. Kosher on that? Okay, awesome. So yeah, you had Luke, right, who was a doctor and historian. Then you had Paul. Remember when, when Paul, before he became Paul, when he was still Saul, he was a Pharisee. Who's a Pharisee of Pharisees, he even said. So that's his background, and he's writing part of the scriptures. And then you had these guys, Peter and John, the fishermen. 
who when Jesus called them, they left their, met, their nets and their mets because they were baseball fans apparently. They left their nets and they followed Jesus to go be with him. And so when we consider the authorship of the Bible, 40 different authors, at least over 66 books from such a broad variety of backgrounds. If I'm setting out to say, hey, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put out a book and I want different people to write. I, I, I'm, this isn't my game plan right here. This isn't my game plan. The author was, the, the, the Bible is unique in its authorship. Let's compare that to a couple other books that are out there that some in the world would say, yeah, these are significant. How about the Quran? Anybody know how many authors the Quran has? One, right? And the Muslims would say, like we would say, well, the author of the Quran is, is Allah, but we would say, well, no, the, the author of the Quran is Muhammad, right? Muhammad wrote it. How about the, the Bhagavad Gita? Do you guys know what that book is? It's part of the, the Hindu faith, and it had how many authors? One. One, it's believed to have been written by a man named Vyasa, followed by multiple edits and changes and additions after that, but it would ultimately come back to one. How about the, the Book of Mormon? How many authors in the Book of Mormon? One. Now, the Mormons would say, well, it's a compilation of the prophets, but we would say that it was ultimately penned by Joseph Smith, right? Okay. So the Bible is unique in its authorship amongst other books. Forty authors, such a broad, vast difference in every single one of them who wrote. But let's keep going. The Bible is also unique in its time span. The Bible is unique in its time span. Anybody want to take a stab at when the first books of the Bible were written? Remember, they were written by Moses. Yeah. Yeah. Sometime between 1400 to 1200 BC is when we believe the first five books of the Bible were ultimately finished and written and, and put in place. Okay, that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So that's 1400 to 1200 BC, the Pentateuch, written by Moses. Anybody know when the last book of the Bible was written? Yeah, sometime between 90 and 180, okay? That's ballpark, that's rough and dirty, as Pastor Michael likes to say, but sometime between 90 and 100 AD, we've got the last book of the Bible written, Revelation, by the Apostle John, yes. So that puts a time span of the writing of all of the Bible, all of this thing, the, the 66 books, 1,100 plus chapters, from Genesis 1-1 all the way through the end of Revelation, that puts it at about how many years? 1,400 to 1,500 years, 14 to 1,500 years to write, to finish the Bible, to finish the, the entirety of the volume of the Bible. All 66 books. Again, let's compare that. The Quran was completed in how many years? Anyone want to take a guess? Close, less? 29, 28, 27. No, close, yeah. 23 years, okay, 23 years. 610 to 632 A.D., 610 to 632 AD, 23 years in which the Quran was written. Again, the Bhagavad Gita was seven to 800 years to its ultimately kind of its, its final tra uh, translation, its final edition. There were edits along the way in that, but about seven to 800 years to compile everything on that. The Book of Mormon, the prophecies were claimed to have been taken place and, and written from 2200 BC to 4180, which would be 2600 years. And we would say, well, that's impressive. However, for some reason, they were laying dormant or missing for over 1400 years until Joseph Smith happened to discover them in New York, of all places, in 1830. 
And so again, we would step back and say, we've got a, a, an enormous gap there. What, what was going on in those 1,400 years? The time span in the Bible is in, insane. It's incredible. 1,500 years. Again, if I'm step, step, setting back, and from a human perspective saying, I'm going to write a significant book that I want to be a book of a major religion. I'm not going to take 1,500 years to get it done. The Bible's a unique book amongst books. Apparently I had a timeline for you guys there, and there it is. And there it goes. The Bible's also unique in its geography. Its geography. It's not a product of one geographical region or one ethnicity. Think with me, participate here. Where are some of the places that the books of the Bible were written from geographically? Rome, Rome. yes. That's the first one I had too, right? What was written from Rome? Ephesians. Ephesians. Some of the prison epistles were written, right? In, in things, yes. Where else were, were books written from in the Bible? Rome is one. Come on, reach back. Jerusalem, Okay. Persia, Babylon. Okay, what book may have been written from Persia and Babylon? Daniel, right? Yeah, so we've got Rome, we've got Persia, we've got Babylon. What else? What other books? We're, Greece, okay. What, where, where in Greece? Okay, and yeah, okay. Where else were books written from? Yes, Egypt is a great answer. Yes, during the Exodus, right? Israel, Patmos, right? The apostle John wrote from the island of Patmos during his exile. So all that to say, you've got this broad region of, of different places, different cultures, different influences from the culture, and you've got the Bible being written from all of these different places, right? Again, if, if I'm the guy and saying, hey, you know what? I'm going to set out to write a book that's going to govern a, a world religion from a human perspective. I'm not going to spread it out so far. Why? Because I, I want it to agree with itself, right? I don't want it to, to be so scattered and have so many different influences in it, right? We'll come back to that in a minute. But the Bible is unique in its geographical influence, where it was written from. The Bible is unique in its literary form. What's that word up there on the screen? Genre. Some people pronounce that so arrogantly. It's like you just listen to them pronounce that and you're like, I don't, I don't know if I want to know you, Right? Genre, genre, whatever. Yeah, the gener. What, what, what is genre, right? It's a literary type. It's a literary type. It's, it's the form in which a text is presented that helps us get clues as to how it should be interpreted, how it should be read. The Bible has different genres involved in it. And you guys would, would get this and understand this, right? If, if I said to you, hey, I want you to talk about your traditions on Christmas Day. But I said, I, I want you to do that with a, a news reporter. You're going to talk about those things with that news reporter in one way, right? But then if I said, I want you to, to write a children's storybook about your traditions on Christmas Day. Same information, but you're going to present it in a different way, aren't you? Because you're after a different impact. You're after a different audience. How about in a poem? You're going to present it even differently there. Or maybe if I said, hey, I want you to sit down and talk with your family members about your memories from Christmas days growing up. It would have a different tone, a different way of presenting it, even in that context. Well, what are the different genres in the Bible? How about this first one there, narrative. Narrative, this is, is storytelling. It's, it's giving an account of events that took place. 
And so we see this in the book of Ruth and Esther, and we see this also in, in the Gospels, right? Giving that narrative account. What are some other genres? Anybody want to take a stab at, at other ones? History. Yes, you guys are awesome. History, right? These, these are historical records, and I'm not saying that narratives aren't historical, but I'm saying narratives differ some in, from history, and that history, you guys know in First and Second Kings where it's like, and, and then this person reigned for this many years, and he did what was evil, and then this person reigned for so many years, and he did what was evil. So it's giving more of the, the record of things, more so than it is telling one continual story with a single plot. There's narratives within historical books, but we would separate those two. First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. Then you've got the law, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The Torah is what the Jews refer to that as. The t- word Torah means law, yes, right? And so you've, you've got law within the Bible where it's giving commands, do this, don't do this. Don't boil a guilt goat in its mother's milk. That's a, a command. So make sure that you guys don't break that one. How about poetry? Job, Psalms, Song of Solomon, Right? Those are books written in a poetic form or in a lyrical form. You've got the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms was the, the ancient Israelite songbook. It's what they would sing. In fact, there were songs of ascent that as they were going up to Jerusalem to worship in the temple, they would be singing these songs as they went up together. And so the Bible uses poetry, uses song in its writing. Wisdom, wisdom literature, the book of Proverbs, the book of Ecclesiastes, giving these pithy statements of of wisdom to us, these nuggets for us to live by, to apply in our lives. Prophecy, Isaiah, Jeremiah, etc. These are are the prophets who came with a message to Israel, a a call to repent, a, a warning of what was to come. And they were predicting things that would take place and those things that were fulfilled. Some of it is, is yet to be fulfilled and will be fulfilled at the return of Christ. And then you've got not only prophecy, but you've also got embedded within prophecy, you've got the apocalyptic literature, a literature dealing with the, the end times. So you've got Daniel, you've got Ezekiel, you've got Revelation in there. And then you've got the discourse or the ep- ep- epistolary literature there, which is the, the epistles, the letters of the New Testament. So just a, a breadth, a, a, a huge variety in there of the way that the Bible presents the truth. And yet, Again, if, if I'm sitting back to write this book from a human perspective, I'm, I'm going to want it to be a little bit more unified, right? I, I don't want things going off, off track there. For me, I'm a, I'm a left brain kind of guy. Don't give me a pen and paper and tell me to draw something. It's not going to go well. So if, if I was doing this, I'd say, okay, let's get rid of the, the poetry. Let's get rid of you know, the, the wisdom. Let's throw more letters in there. The prophecy, that stuff gets kind of crazy. Let's not do that. The apocalyptic, no, definitely not. Uh, let's just let's just write letters and tell people what to do. That would be my my approach. Thank God I didn't write the Bible for so many different reasons. But the Bible is unique in its literary form. The Bible is unique in its languages. In its languages. How many languages was the Bible written in? Three. Yes. Yes. Three. And they are. What's the Old Testament written in? Hebrew. and Aramaic, yes, that's the tricky one, is, is Aramaic there. And then the New Testament was written in? Greek. Koine Greek, Cody Davidson. Did you go to seminary or something? Learning, Learning Koine Greek. Yeah, Koine means common. Um, yeah, 
So it's, it's written in three languages. So, I mean, consider again the, the number of authors, consider the geographical breadth, consider the 1500 year time span. You know, three languages is, is pretty remarkable on that front. Uh, but again, yet, if I'm writing this from a human perspective, I'm going to say, you know what, let's just unify this. Let's just, how about just one language, guys? That, that should work. The Bible's written in three languages. I think this one might be my favorite. The Bible is unique in its circulation and translation. It's circulation and translation. Consider some of these stats, guys. In 2017 alone, the Bible was translated into 20 languages for the first time. That reached 14 million people who are native speakers of those languages. So in 2017, 20 new languages or 20 languages that previously didn't have a Bible got a Bible, reaching approximately 14 million new people. In 2017, there were 49 languages that had a Bible translated into it total. In other words, there were 49 different projects going on in 2019 that had a Bible finished in that language. Not necessarily for the first time, but just in general. And that's reaching approximately 580 million people. In total, there's 647 languages with complete Bibles which amounts to greater than 5 billion people who have access to it. I'm not saying they all have Bibles, okay? So don't be like, they don't all have Bibles. I get that. But at least there's, there's more than 5 billion people who currently can have access to a full Bible in their native tongue. Beyond that, there's an additional 1,500 languages. In fact, it's 1,515 languages spoken by 613 million more people who have a New Testament, at least access to a New Testament. So let's put pen to paper and start to talk about statistics on this, percentages. That means 68%, 68% of the world's population has access to a full Bible in their native tongue. If you're wondering where I got the the numbers on this from, it's from the United Bible Society website. United Bible Society website. 68% of the world's population has access to a full Bible in their native language. And not only that, 76% of the world's population have access to at least a New Testament in their native language. That's impressive. Those numbers are are nothing to to scoff at. We want to see those numbers go up, right? Right? We want to be praying that that those numbers go uh, through the roof. We want to see 100% on on both of those. We want to see 100% of the people in the world to a Bible in their native tongue. Again, let's compare that to some of the other books. The Quran. Portions of the Quran have been translated into 114 languages. 114 languages. Complete versions of the Quran exist in only 47 languages which works out to roughly 1 billion people with access to the Quran in their native tongue. That's 14% of the world's population. You know what I say to that? Praise God. I'd like to see that number go down. I don't know how that would happen, but I'd love to see that number go down. Forget this language. Oh man, I, I used to know it, now I don't. Oh, I can't read my Quran anymore. That'd be amazing. Nothing's impossible. How about the Bhagavad Gita? That's, it's uncertain, but about 100 plus languages, 100, 110, 114, 115. Anyways, still not near the, the scope of, of the Bible. The Book of Mormon, 
I was looking for information, and, and usually they're not shy on statistics, although maybe there's a reason they're shy on this statistic. The, the last one that I could find from their website, the LDS website, in 2011, they were celebrating selling 150 million copies of the Book of Mormon. It's 150 million too many, but still, 150 million copies of the Book of Mormon, and they've reached 110 languages. So you look at the statistics and it speaks for itself. The Bible is unrivaled in its circulation and in its translation. Going along with that, though, the Bible is unique in its survival and its resiliency. The Bible is unique in its survival and its resiliency. Can you think of a a more polarizing book in the entire world than the scriptures, than the Bible? I, I don't know that I can, and it's been polarizing for centuries. And it's withstood some pretty intense attacks, some pretty intense criticism, and some pretty intense hostility. In the year 303 AD, Emperor Diocletian issued an edict calling for the destruction of all Bibles. He wanted all of the the places where Christians were gathering for worship destroyed and every single Bible destroyed. And then in the 1920s and the 1930s, you had the Marxist revolutionaries attempting to do the same thing, to ban all Bibles and to destroy all Bibles. And then even today, there are plenty of closed countries where owning a Bible and having a Bible in your possession can get you imprisoned, if not killed. And yet, in spite of these attacks, and in spite of being perhaps the most scrutinized book in history, the Bible continues to thrive and prove itself true time and time again. I put this quote up on my uh, Facebook page earlier today. It, it just sums it up perfectly for me. And I love the way he puts this. Bernard Rahm says, A thousand times over, the death knell of the Bible has been sounded. The funeral procession formed, the inscription cut on the tombstone, and the committal read, but somehow the corpse never stays put. No other book has been so chopped, so knifed, sifted, scrutinized, and vilified. What book on philosophy or religion or psychology or belletras of classical or modern times has been subject to such a mass attack as the Bible? with such venom and skepticism, which with such thoroughness and erudition upon every chapter, line, and tenet. It's true. I mean, you, you can't put forward a book that's been under as much scrutiny as the Bible has. And yet there's a reason why the church still has its doors open today. There's a reason why people are still getting saved. Because those that set out to destroy the Bible, you know what they're batting? Ofer. They haven't been able to do it. And it's not for lack of trying. It's for lack of any legitimate opposition to it. Why? Because we believe that this is the inspired word of God. We'll get there in just a minute. But we believe that this is the the special revelation of the God who created everything, who's making himself known to us. Eighth, the Bible's unique in its impact on Western civilization. Its impact on Western civilization. Think of everything that's been influenced by the Bible or by biblical teachings. We talked earlier about morality that's evident in our world. 
that there is a standard of morality which people want to hold to, whether they openly profess that they believe in God or not. But the, the Bible, God's word, has had an, a, a bearing on morality, on what is right and wrong. How about on, on government? Think about this. The, the democratic model of government, while not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, is still the best model given the understanding of human depravity, isn't it? Of sinfulness. The fact that, that nobody can hold on to power for any extended period of time of their own accord. That there is no absolute power because they would say that absolute power corrupts absolutely, right? Even the ideas of, of order and submission are biblical principles that impact our culture and our society. How about the dignity and worth of human beings? It comes from biblical teaching that man is created in the image of God. And so then when somebody is murdered, there's a problem with that. If we're of a naturalistic bent in society, just like Jeffrey Dahmer said, then why does it matter if I kill somebody? There's no inherent worth in that person. But the Bible would say, no, there is because we've been created in the image of God. It's impacted art, music, and literature. Maybe not as much anymore as it once did. But certainly some of the greatest art, music, and literature center around biblical themes, biblical concepts, biblical ideas. It's also impacted us in the area of law and justice, too. The concept of, of justice is a biblical concept. One gentleman by the last name of, of Hefley said this, Almost all of the good things of life that we take for granted bear the stamp of the Bible's influence. Marriage, family, names, calendar, institutions of caring, social agencies, education, benefits from science, uplifting books, magnificent works of art and music, freedom, justice, equal rights, the work ethic, the virtues of self-reliance and self-discipline said all those things bear the stamp of the Bible's influence. The Bible has had a great influence on Western civilization. By the way, the final one is this. The Bible's unique in its inspiration. And by inspiration, I don't mean what's taking place in this picture, okay? But if you Google God breathed or inspiration, it's impossible to find anything that, that fits the context. But a lot of times people think inspiration and they think of something weird and creepy like this. The, 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 you're not going to open up your Bible and have lightning shoot out of it or whatever that's supposed to be. Anyways, that's not going to happen. That's not what we mean when we say that the Bible is unique by being inspired. In fact, it comes from 2 Timothy 3.16. Does anybody know what 2 Timothy 3.16 says? Yes, it says that. That's up on the screen. All scripture is breathed out by God. Breathed out by God. Some of the translations have said all scripture is inspired. And that's where we get this concept of inspiration. But the problem is that we've got Facebook accounts and Insta accounts that are like inspirational quotes with Sally. And so we think of inspirational that way, right? Or like, you guys know what I'm talking about. I mean, you, you go to the coffee shops and take a picture of your latte and it's like, oh, this is so inspirational. I want to conquer the world. That's not what, what we mean when we say that the Bible is inspired, okay? That's not it. What we mean is what the ESV says, that it's breathed out by God. That's what the Greek means. It's, it's breathed out by. But even that, it's, it's kind of sitting back there going, okay, what do we mean by that? Well, in Matthew 4, 4, Jesus says every word is from the mouth of God. Every word 
is from the mouth of God. 2 Peter 1.21, grab your Bibles, open them up to 2 Peter 1.21 to put your eyes on this text. Hebrews, James, 1 Peter, 2 Peter. So go to 2 Peter 1.21. Actually, let's back up. Let's go to verse 19. Peter writes, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Verse 20, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. In other words, men didn't sit down and decide, hey, you know what? I'm going to write the Bible today. Yeah, I don't have anything better to do. I'm going to write the Bible today. I could kill a giant with a sling and a stone, but I'm going to write the Bible. 4, verse 21, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's this doctrine of inspiration, this doctrine of the Bible being God-breathed. Words that come from God written by men carrying divine authority For faith, that is what we believe, and practice, which is how we behave. Again, words from God, written by men, carrying divine authority. For faith, which is what we believe, and for practice, which is how we behave. We believe that the word of God is inspired in everything, in every word. That it is God-breathed. Sometimes as Christians, we squirm at that. We're like, really, we're supposed to tell people that? Like, I believe that, but I'm supposed to tell somebody that? Can we just back up and say that, that we believe that, that God exists? That, let's take every limitation that we want to put on him then and, and just throw that out. If we're going to allow that God exists, we can allow that the Bible is God-breathed. Amen? Okay. Here's what it doesn't mean. Here's what the doctor of, doctrine of inspiration doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that the authors themselves were inspired. Okay. It doesn't mean that that they were anything that were super special or amazing or different or that they were like walking around with halos glowing on their heads, okay? That's not what it means when we say that the the Bible was was inspired, that that the word of God is inspired. The words are God-breathed, not the authors. The authors are just men, okay? It's like James is talking about in the book of James, in James chapter 5, he's talking about... um, Elijah, when he's talking about the, the prayer of the, of the righteous man accomplishes much, and he says he prayed that it might not rain, and it didn't rain. And he says, but he's a, he was a man just like we were, right? And that's the same thing when it comes to the writers of scriptures. God used them, but it's not that they were anything incredibly special. James five seventeen, Elijah was not a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently, fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. God used him. God used these writers. But we don't worship Paul. We don't worship Peter. That's one thing that, that differentiates a little bit, uh, us a little bit from, from the Catholic teaching in this regard. We don't canonize men and women. We are all fallen sinners just as much in, in, in need of the grace of God as anyone else. And so we're not to idolize one another. We're not to worship one another. We're not to pray to or through human beings at all. And so the words of God's word are inspired, not the authors. But that doesn't mean at the same time that the authors were robotic. That's the second thing that inspiration doesn't mean. 
This doesn't mean that these were robotic authors, that they were just machines in the hand of God as he was penning these things. They wrote with their own personality and their own writing style. But in that, they wrote exactly what God wanted them to write. How they presented it, though, their personalities and their own writing, their own writing styles came through on that. For instance, if you look at the Greek in the Gospel of John, it's way easier to, to translate as you're just learning Greek than to jump into the epistle to the Hebrews. The epistle to the Hebrews is written at a much more technical, more difficult level because you had different authors, different educational backgrounds, different writing styles come through in how they wrote. Paul wrote differently than Peter wrote, than James wrote, than Jude wrote, etc., etc. Norm Geisler put it this way. He said, God used their personalities to convey his propositions. God used their personalities to convey his propositions. Third thing that the doctrine of inspiration doesn't mean, and I need to, to be careful on this one because I want to explain it to you. It doesn't mean that every single copy of the Bible is inspired by God. Okay? Now you say, well, wait a minute, doesn't that disprove everything that you've just been talking about? No, here's what I mean by that. Only the original documents were 100% fully and infallibly breathed out by God. So the original documents, the, what we call the autographs, okay, we're going to get it much more in depth than this in two weeks, but only those were the ones that we can say, these are 100% God breathed. And then after that, the, the degree to which something that we could say is, is yes, fully inspired is how closely to the original does it match up. Now, here's where I want to put your heart at rest. As we compare the manuscripts of the New Testament and Old Testament, the ones that we have, we have a very incredibly accurate copy of what the originals actually said. Even though we can't get all the way back to the originals, we can still have a pretty good understanding of what the original said. And you might say, well, how can you have a good understanding of what the original said? Let me give you this illustration. If your professor stood up at the beginning of class and read a paragraph out loud one time and then told the class, I want you to copy down what I just said, would everybody in the class copy it down the same way? No, you'd have to recall certain things. But would there be similarities? Would, some, would, would there be parts of it that everybody matched up on? Yeah, everybody would, would probably be able to get the first three or four words out, right? So you could be you could be 99.9% .9 sure on those things that if you've got a room of 50 people and all 50 match up on these five, six words in this, that these five or six words were absolutely said by the professor, right? Tracking with me? Okay, we can do that with the Bible to uh, an in insane degree of accuracy, all right? We can take the copies that we have and we see how when we lay them over one another, they align, they match up to the point that we can say, yeah, we, we are 99.9% .9 sure that this is what the original actually said. Are there discrepancies? Yeah, there are some discrepancies. Like in 2 Kings 8.26, it talks about Ahaziah, Ahaziah there. And it says that he was 22 when he began to rule as king. 2 Kings 8.26, he's 22. 2 Chronicles 22.2, Ahaziah there is listed to be 42 when he took the throne. Oh, well then throw out the whole Bible. See, it's got errors in it. No, th that's what we're talking about when we're talking about the errors. It's, it's, it's small things. And we'll, again, we'll talk about this more in two weeks. If you're like, wait a minute, I want more on that. We'll talk about it more in two weeks. I promise you. But what I'm saying is, th this is ultimately a, a copy of the originals. Is it an accurate copy? Yes. I would stake my life and my eternity on it. I have staked my life and my eternity on it. But it, it, it's still a, a copy. So when we're talking about ultimately the uniqueness of the Bible being its inspiration, the only 
100% authoritatively, infallibly, without error, God-breathed documents were the original ones that the authors wrote down and every copy that are exactly like them. Does that make sense? Okay, I want to stop for a second and, and just make sure on that one. Did, did I confuse the daylights out of some of you? Okay, good. Good. All right, come talk to me afterwards on that more if you want to. Again, we'll hit it again hard in a couple weeks. But yeah, the, the, the doctrine of inspiration is another unique thing about the scriptures. And so as we end our, our time, wrap our time up together tonight, we come back to this question, what makes the Bible so unique? Just think about the first three things we talked about. The number of authors, 40 plus. The time span of their writing, over 1,500 years, 1,400 to 1,500 years. The geographical spread of their writing. So many different places over those 1,500 years. So many different cultural influences over those 1,500 years. And yet there's one thread throughout the pages of Scripture that ties everything together. There's that unity in theme that it's all anticipating or applying what? The cross. Do you guys know when the cross comes on the scene in the book of the Bible? No, when, when's our first reference to the cross? When's the, the first hint of the cross in scripture? Genesis 3.15. Three chapters into the Bible, nine verses after the fall, you've got the cross on the scene. Genesis 3.15 says this, God is speaking to Satan in judgment for what happened at the fall. By the way, guys, this is another reason why I think we have to take the account of Genesis literally. Because this is a major salvific doctrine of Christianity right here. The doctrine of the fall. And if we make Genesis metaphorical, this goes out the window. And we're left to our own wisdom to try to figure out how we squeeze the fall in there. Genesis 3.15, God is talking to, to Satan, judging Satan for his role in the fall. He says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, Eve, between your offspring and her offspring. Now, notice the focus on this next part. He, the offspring of the woman, offspring of Eve, shall bruise your head. I don't like that translation in the ESV. It bruise more crush. He, he shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. Who's the offspring of the woman? One of those Sunday school answers, the middle one, rhymes with schmizes. Jesus. Good. Yes. Jesus is the offspring of the woman, the descendant of Eve. And God is telling Satan at this point, your days are numbered. Yes, you will wound his heel. Where? Chris Thomas song, at the cross where your love ran red, right? At the cross. He's going to bruise his heel at the cross, but what is Jesus going to do? What is the offspring of the woman going to do to Satan? Crush his head. Genesis 3.15. Now, Revelation chapter 20, verses 9 and 10. Revelation 29 and 10. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. This is the followers of the Antichrist, the followers of, of Satan. This is the followers. These are all those who are uh, uh, in, in opposition to God. 
surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil, Satan, who had deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. First the book of the Bible. The promise is made. And then we see it unfold throughout the rest of the book of the Bible. The rest of the books the 64 books between Genesis and, and Revelation, we see it unfold. We see it, it come to the climax of the cross. And then we finally see the ultimate realization of it in Revelation chapter 20, where Satan is prophesied that he will be thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where he will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Do you guys see the thread that, that courses throughout the entirety of the scriptures? But again, think about it. The chances, think about the chances of one book with such a variety, so many different authors, so many different geographical influences over such an incredibly long amount of time, yet being so unified in theme. The chances of that happening is remote at best. And I would say actually it's, it's probably zero unless it is actually God's revealed word. If I took 40 people who didn't know each other, by and large, most of them didn't know each other. If I took 40 of them and I scattered them throughout the United States and I told these 40 people, hey, you know what? I want you to take, forget 1,500 years, I want you to take 15 years and I want you to take three books of, of this, this big volume. I want you to take two. You just take one. You take uh, 13. You'll be Paul for me. And then you take this many and you, and I said, I, and I didn't give any other instruction. I said, I want you all to write the, the, the 66 books and I want you to bring them back together and I want them all to be unified in theme. But hey, you guys can't talk to each other. What are the chances that they're going to come back with something that is actually unified in theme and storyline and direction. What are the chances? Zero. That's what happened with this book. But not over 15 years, over 1,500 years, 1,400 years. How does that happen if it's not actually God? Okay? So why the Bible? That's, that's part one on why the Bible. It is a unique book. And when we consider these, these statistics and when we consider all the variables present in these 66 books, the natural conclusion for us to come to is that yes, this book is from God. It's the only explanation for its unity, its cohesiveness, and the fact that I can trace the gospel from Genesis 3.15 all the way through the end. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth. We thank you for the reliability. We thank you that it is a book that is so unique. We thank you that the, the evidence that continues to be found, the archaeology, archaeological evidence, the manuscript evidence that we have continues to testify to its, its uniqueness and its veracity, its reliability, God, that we can put our faith and our trust in this book. God, I thank you that you did choose to make yourself known, that you didn't remain in the shadows of the cosmos, but that you intervened and that you wrote us a, a, a book to tell us about yourself and, and to reveal to us what our greatest need is. And that greatest need is salvation. Even as we heard this weekend of people standing up in the back baptism tank and testifying to come to that realization and putting their faith in Christ and, and giving their lives completely to him, fully surrendering to him. 
God, we praise you for that. We give you thanks for that. God, we would be at, at such a loss if we were left to our own wisdom. God, I pray that this evening's message would have been encouraging to some, even just bolster the confidence in the word of God. And I pray that it might be used to, to go out and reach some that are on the fence, skeptical, questioning, doubtful, and give them something to, to chew on, that you might maybe use that to draw them further and further towards you. Father, we love you, and we thank you for this. Pray that you'd be with us the rest of the night as we go into small groups now. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.